If you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. And we're going to be reading the first four verses, no, first five verses together. This is God speaking. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentile shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory, and thou shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall in thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. And thy land, Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. May God add his blessing to the public reading of his word. So... As I was thinking of Thanksgiving, as I was trying to think of what, in what way should I present the gospel that forms Thanksgiving in our hearts, I decided to go to the point of the gospel that is the softest. See, the, the gospel is, is not one thing. The gospel is a hammer that can crack the hardest nut a hammer that can completely crush to powder the, the offenders before God who are, are in, unrepentant. But it is a soft pillow to people who repent. The gospel is all that I want. It's all that I go back to. To know that Jesus Christ has lived in my place means that I am not trying. I'm not in a competition. I'm not in a tryout. If I were being a tri- if I were being tried out, there is no crown for me. I won't make it. The, I've I've already known that I've lost. It's a, it's already lost. But to know that Jesus lived, and as I learn about Him, that He lived flawlessly, impeccably, that there was no sin in Him at all, that all He did pleased God completely, and that He offered Himself to us. That is soft. When I find myself a failure, Jesus is soft. When I find myself incapable of doing my best or incapable of doing the things God requires of me, Jesus is soft. Jesus also is a sharp stick to get me going because the gospel teaches me to say no to ungodliness. So when I practice my secret sins, when I pet my pet sins, my pet scorpion that I love very much and stings me all the time, and I'm dying because of my sins, the gospel is what what goads me and sticks me that I might go away from my sins and leave them and drop them. That's what the gospel does. So the gospel is many things. 
And the gospel is warning that because Jesus Christ died and because mankind has been judged and will be judged based upon God's own standards, Jesus Christ met God's own standards. So to have a Savior is to have life. But those who have not the Son have not life. So the gospel is dread warning. It is dark, black, scary skies. So the gospel is many things. Now, I am thankful for those dark, scary warnings that drove me to Christ. I'm thankful for those torrentous waves that rammed me into the solid rock that I know is my Savior. I'm thankful. So when I say thank you, God, I'm thanking him for the miseries of my conviction. I'm thanking him for the the sweaty nights where I knew that I was going to hell. I knew it. It was sure. I thank him, and I thank him that he awoke us by his gospel presented. I thank him. I thank him that, that a preacher simply just said, thus saith the Lord to me, so that I would look up and that God himself put faith in my heart. I'm thankful for that. So I'm thankful for the hammer. I'm thankful for the stick. And I'm thankful for the, for the dread, scary skies. But, oh, I'm thankful that I can fall on Christ. I'm thankful. And so I chose to, in, to start this by reading a selection from one of my favorite books. I read this again last year. I've read this, I don't know how many times, multiple times. But this is by John Bunyan. This is Pilgrim's Progress. There was a time in the English-speaking world where after the Bible, the, the book that sold more copies was the Pilgrim's Progress. And it did more in, in the colonial America to who we are because that is, if anybody would have a book, this is the book they would have on their shelf. And I went right to the end Now, the very end, he goes to the celestial city. He goes across the Jordan River, and he's terrified. He's so scared. He doesn't think he'll make it. He thinks he's going to go under. The waters are too cold, and the waters are too deep, and he knows that he's going to die. And his friend, Hopeful, is holding him up and saying, No, look at the city. Look at the city. And he passes over into glory. But the chapter right before that, is called Beulah Land. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from that. Now I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims were got over the enchanted ground and entering into the country of Beulah, whose air was very sweet and pleasant. The way lying directly through it, it solaced themselves for that first season. Yea, here they heard continually the singing of birds and saw every day the flowers upon the earth and heard the voice of the turtle in the land. Did you see why I chose the Song of Solomon? That's where that comes from. That when God tells his beloved, arise, get up, live, I love you. Suddenly now, there is a hearing for that person. They hear the turtle, the turtle dove. They hear the birds. For the first time, they're alive because they're really alive. And everything that's around them points to God. To a, to a person with Christ in their vision, you look at the breathtaking mountains 
and it's rejoicing. To a, to a godless person, they look at the mountains and that's their only comfort because they're beautiful, because God is beautiful. They're majestic because God is majestic and it all works and never fails. The sun comes up every day, every day. Everybody knows you wear a coat at Thanksgiving week. Everybody knows that it's 20 degrees when you get up at 530 to go hunting. Everybody knows because for centuries and thousands of years, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it works because God is consistent and his nature follows him in those attributes. So you hear the the turtle and you hear the singing and there will be a time in my life and maybe it's already in your life where we've been crucified to this world and the world has been crucified to us. And for that reason, the, the enticements of the world's is not as much anymore. They're not as impressing. They're not as dangly. The little plastic junk that I beg for for Christmas is not so, it's not enough. I was listening to the radio the other day and I just turned it off. And without even thinking, not even praying, not even talking to myself, I just said, this world is disgusting. That's all I said. This world is disgusting. Because I don't know what they were trying to convince me of. They were trying to change my mind about something and make make wrong seem right or up seem down or back seem front. Or You've heard it all. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I just thought, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because there's nothing wrong with what God has done. It's only the sin that has, that is a poisonous cancer that has grown through this place And the people that it's affected breaks my heart. These people are people. These people are made in the image of God. And they're absolutely disgusting. And they love it. They love being that way. Because that's who we are. That's who all of us are. We will go our own way. But Jesus speaks to us and says, arise, my love. When you hear his voice... And life comes into you. Suddenly now you want that. It's better than what you had. It's better than what you had. Erin had something. We got it at Walmart. And I opened it up and I said, would you like one of these? And she said, no, thank you. And I said, why not? She said, I'm sorry. I've had better. Now, now I, I had to kind of stop. I thought, ooh, okay. Sorry that I'm not up to your standards. But most of the better she's had, she made herself. But she's like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to waste the calories. It's not good enough. And then I just thought, oh, my goodness, that's my whole life. That I grab a Walmart yucky just because it's there. Because I've had better. If Jesus has spoken into your heart, you know something. And you want something. And there's a desire to do something. And there will be a time in your life, Christian, I promise you that if you will submit the Holy Spirit in your life, there will be a time where you are still in this world, but you live on the other side of the Jordan River from glory. And you look and you can see. And in this, in this chapter, it said that you couldn't see the city. 
that was made of gold because when the sun came up above the mountains above behind you, you, it blinded you. You wanted to look at it. It was enticing and drawing, but you had to shield yourself. You couldn't look directly at it, but you could live in it. And it was what you wanted, and it was what you wanted. And suddenly, everything behind you, all of your battles were over. All of your, the, it said, the, it said the, the shadow of death was already, the valley of the shadow of death was already behind you. You already dealt with the fact that you put to death your sin nature. You've already dealt with it. That the world was crucified to you. And that there's nothing in this world system that entices you. That you're not, that you're not interested in chasing after the stuff that will not last. There is a time in a Christian's life as they submit. Now there are lots of immature Christians that will all the way go to their, to their grave being mature. And God will hold their hand because a Christian is saved. That's what a Christian is. They're saved. But to be able to live in Beulah land, wow, to be able to live there. Now, Beulah land is taught in Isaiah 62. It's what we just read. And God is speaking, and God is speaking in loud voice. So let's look at it again. This is verse 1 of 62. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, okay? Um, I will not be silent. That's what it means. I won't be silent. I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to speak, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to be heard. For Zion's sake, for my people's sake. Remember, Zion is where his, his people lived. That was, that was his home. It's where his people are from. And as Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. That means I'll not stop acting. I'll not stop working. I'll not stop doing. Now, God who is omnipotent, God who can do all things, God who is all wise, said, because of you, my people, I will never stop speaking and I will never stop acting until the righteousness thereof goes forth as brightness. I will not stop acting until you are glowing with righteousness. You, who I already know who you are, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. I know how wicked you were, and you, you were racing each other for wickedness. You were all trying to be the most wicked you could be. And some people were egregious in their wickedness so that everybody on earth would know they were wicked. And then others, like me, were very privately wicked, doing as they pleased, doing what they wanted, doing the way they wanted, and don't help me, no thank you. Either way, God was not God to you. You were a rebel. You were rebellious. So God looking at you, who he has said, arise, my love. It was the arise that set you apart. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus. That's all it took. He was four days rotting in the grave, and Jesus said, Lazarus, and it went not into the cave. It went into eternity, and Lazarus responded and got up. So when Jesus speaks into your life and you hear the love, suddenly now there's life. There's life that just immediately fills your lungs, and then he gives you the most beautiful passage. I will never stop 
talking to you. I will never stop working for you. I'll never stop fighting for you. I'll never stop acting in your behalf until your righteousness shines as brightness and and thy salvation thereof as the lamp that burns, that you're being like me, that you're being rescued by me, that you being saved by me, which, by the way, for me to say I'm saved totally presupposes that I was guilty. If I needed saved, it meant that I couldn't save myself. Otherwise, I would have saved myself. Now, when he says, for your sake, that's very interesting because God is the biggest promoter of himself in the universe. There's no one that promotes God than God. God promotes his own glory. That is what God is about. God establishes and promotes and publishes his glory. Everything about God shines as glory. And he is the most important to him is that his glory be higher and higher and higher. Now, it's interesting. The glory of God in my life is stronger now to where I want that more than I want everything else. And you could actually chart it on my life. As you go back in time, I wanted God's glory less and less and less and less. Do you see what caused that? What caused me to want his glory? It was arise, my love you and get busy. I mean, all of it together. Him working in my life, working in my life. Remember, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it, will continually work. He'll never stop until the day of Christ. When you are judged and be found flawless, when you will one day be worthy to wear white, Who of us even thinks that we could wear white? We will be worthy to wear white because he will work in us and work in us and work in us. And the righteousness that's Christ, ours positionally, grows practically in our lives. We start matching. We start matching. I love you. I love you. I love you. And that love causes thanksgiving. That's why I picked this. The love causes thanksgiving. And thanksgiving causes love. It is, a, it is an eddy that surrounds it. And there is no power on earth that can cause me to obey God against my design, against my bent, against my fallenness other than love. Love is the only strong thing that can do it. You threaten me with hell, it will not. I will belly bop you right up to the time you push me in the chasm. I will stand strong. You will not make me bow. I was sharing the gospel with a girl in Germany once, and I spoke six words of German, and her English wasn't the best. And the only thing she said is, I not say sorry. I not say sorry. And she even gave me the, I not say sorry. And I just remember, I've thought of her a thousand times, I not say sorry. It's that idea of squish me if you want to, I not say sorry. This is Isaiah 48, verse 9, if you just go back just a little bit. Now, you have to remember, first half of Isaiah is is warning. There is judgment against every country around Israel. Starting starting clockwise, it just goes all the way around Israel. Every country, I'm going to judge you, country. I'm going to judge you, country. I'm going to judge you, country. Every single nation in the surrounding area is judged, and then it comes into the center and judges Jerusalem. I'm going to judge you, Jerusalem. 
you filthiest of the nations, you absolute most corrupt of, of all that, that I know of, you who are my people who should know better, who should act like me, are the worst and less like me. These heathen nations who know nothing about me are living in a godlier life than you are. And I will sentence you to judgment. I will. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take you away and there won't be anything left of you. Your city will be in ruin. Your city will be vanquished. There will not be a block upon another block. It will all be burned and empty. And the only thing that will live in your houses are jackals. Now, he's already said this. Then in verse in chapter 40, you have God speaking over and over and over. And it starts with 40 verse 1. Comfort my people. Comfort you, my people. And then 42, and then 43, and then we read in 43 before, 42 before this idea of absolute love. I will do everything for you. I am decided that I get my glory through your triumph, not through your destruction. So, yes, I will, I will punish you. Yes, it's going to be awful. Yes, it's going to be the most depressing, sad thing you've ever seen in your life. And I love you, and I will get you all the way. And I, so, so starting in the 60s, God changes his tone and you have the insteads. You start at 60 and 61 and 62 and 65. Instead, you will have, you will have beauty instead of ashes. You will have, you have life instead of, you'll have joy instead of mourning. All of it is flip-flop because I am God. I can make you win. That, that's what God says. Do you see the comfort in my soul when I look at my hands and they're sinning and I look at my mind and it's fallen and I don't love God and I don't read my Bible and I don't witness to people and I absolutely just I'm trying to hang on because I don't want to go to hell. God is saying, no, you've got it all wrong. I love you. I have married you and I'm going to get you all the way home. And that is a comfort because if you comfort me, I'll get up and I'll pick up my sword again and I'll go more. If you completely demoralize an army, you can destroy them. In fact, there's whole people that their whole job is to demoralize the other side. So you can say, you can't win. Give it up. But if you can encourage, put courage into a person by saying, I'm God, I am God, and I have chosen to bless you, then suddenly now his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are life to me. So this is Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my namesake will I defer mine anger. And for my praise I will frame thee. I will not cut thee off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Interesting. For my own sake, for my own own sake, twice he says that, will I do it. For how shall my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. I'm going to do what I'm doing in your life for my glory. Jesus Christ gets more glory for saving a sinner that all the world knows will be a sinner and taking him as a righteous prize than for his justice on that person. Jesus is higher in the world's esteem than if he were to judge me. If he were to judge me, the world would call him righteous. If he would destroy me, the world would call him righteous. For him to save me absolutely astonishes the world. 
and makes Jesus higher. And it makes me love him. And it makes me thankful. And that thanksgiving returns around into love. And that love causes me to live like him. And my righteousness becomes like the righteousness that I already have in his sight. So believers can't ever stop applying the gospel to each other. Because it says, until your, until your righteousness goes forth as brightness and your salvation is the lamp that burneth. That's what we do in each other's heart. This was God speaking to us, but it's us. So whoever preaches to you, that's the number one thing. Until you have the maturity of Christ, until you actually are grown up into the man of Christ. This is, this is Ephesians 4. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until that's true of you, I will work, I will love, I will come, I will put up my hand around you, I will ask you questions. As awkward as it is for me, is totally that I don't want to. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about real things. I'd rather talk about the weather. So, so you work in each other's life. You directly apply the gospel. You could continuously, not necessarily preach down to anybody. We don't preach down to anybody. We simply take the gospel that we have some experience with and share it in each other's lives to the ones that we know are gods that we might build them up until their righteousness shines like a brightness and their salvation shines like a lamp. Until we have seen in each other the fullness of the of what Christ is, the way that Christ would live. That's why that you meet together. That's why we are not internet Christians. We meet together so we can interact together. That's how it works. We do that. Verse 2, this is back to, to Isaiah 62. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all thy kings thy glory. That's the first part of 62, the first part of 62. I went to Revelation right at the end. Revelation ends in chapter 22. This is the end of chapter 21, starting in verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were the temple of it, and the city had no need for the sun, neither the moon, to shine on it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb did lighten thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall no wise enter anything that defileth, neither anything that works the abomination or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't know what your opinion of the modern-day church is, or of the ancient church, or of the middle-aged church. You, you could look at it and go, it, have we given the gospel to the world? Are we doing the Great Commission? And I, I'm sure that all over the world, people would call the church completely irrelevant. Who cares if you're a Methodist? Who cares if you're a Buddhist? It really doesn't matter. What does that matter? It means nothing in our real world. Well, that means we failed. That's a failure. God doesn't see it that way. 
God said, when all my people are in, when I have gotten them all safely home, they will shine like the burning brightness, and all the kings of the earth shall see their glory, and nothing polluted will come into my presence. He is not in any state of frustration. God's not frustrated. He will allow us to triumph, and we will do as he wants us to do. It's his power, not ours. Now, a, a person who is willing to live in Beulah Land, if that is even possible, I don't live there, but a, a person who lives in Beulah Land is more likely to simply say, what does it matter what people think of me? Men aren't big in my eyes. God's big in my eyes. Do You see, I'm still in the stage where God, God is smaller than most men. Most men are scary, even people that I don't know, even sweet little old ladies that I know are going to hell. I don't want to bother them. Do you understand? I, I don't feel like I live in Beulah Land. There, it's not that you're, you're more yeah when you're in Beulah Land, but it's the fact that you are looking at glory You're looking across the Jordan where your mansions are, and you know that that's where your citizenship is. And I'm not going to care so much about this place that will all go in flames. So there's something to where when your heart is completely God's, there's an ease and a love and a joy that comes into your heart. And I believe Beulah Land is progressive in our hearts. I believe it's progressive. And it has to do with the judgment, you have to believe, because when it gets in before, let me, let me finish the, the other six, and then I'll say what I was about to say. This is, this is the second part of 62. You shall be called with a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now, God is giving us a promise. Something is going to be true of us, that we have a new name, and it will help us, not because that's more of a prize, even though that it is a prize. But you have to remember to the churches, to the churches in chapter two of Revelation, you're given a white stone with your name inscribed on it. That is, if you overcome, to those who overcome, to those who are basically putting to death that part of your life that is earthly and seeking to live for God, then you will be given a white stone with your name on it. Now, I had to look that up. What in the world does that mean? And then I found, I mean, John wrote this, the same one that we're doing in the the Gospel of John. John wrote the Revelation. The, The Romans would give an entry ticket to anybody that won a competition. If you won an uh, athletic competition, there was a big competition, you were the winner. Then there was an awards banquet. And your ticket was a white rock with your name on it. It was an entry to, to the rewards. And I thought, oh, that's what you get. Anybody that overcomes can come to me and share everything that I won for them. It's, it's their entrance. It's the wedding clothes. Remember the wedding clothes? It's the wedding clothes that allow, allow you to participate in the, in the wedding. It's your entrance. That, that's encouraging to me. It, it, makes, it makes me like, okay, if I can do this, then I can be brave. I can, I can live in this world and not be afraid. 
Verse 3, 62 verse 3 says, You shall be a crown of glory in the hand of your God and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You will be a crown to him. Now, that made me scratch my head. And In what way is God's people his crown? Because God is king whether he had a people or not. God is God regardless of me acknowledging him God. I didn't make him God. He's God. But there is a, it's almost the idea of a jealousy. The crown is the prince's show. It's what shows that the, that the prince is the, has the crown. That shows that he's the prince. He won't let it be trodden on. He won't let it be abused. He won't let it be taken. To take the crown is to take the prize. It's to, it's to essentially win. The war, you, you take the crown, you've won the war. So if, if you are a royal diadem in the hand of your God, it's the idea that God treasures you, which still is amazing to me. God, you're precious. You have a price in yourself that God would rather his crown be trodden on than you. Now, the comfort that this is building, there's a building comfort that this is, that God loves you, arise, my love, and come away. It can be talking to someone that he doesn't even know very well. But for me to be a royal crown to him, as though that the same value that he puts in his own sovereignty is what he would put in me, in his church, that makes that, he, that he's jealous of us. And you'll see a dozen times in the Old Testament that God is jealous of you. I will not share my glory with any, we read today. I'll not share my glory with anyone. We're precious in his sight. So now we get to Beulah land. And then I'll talk about what I was about to say before. I'm sorry. So go to verse 4. This is where we'll camp. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall your land any more be termed desolate. Do you see what's happening? They're about to go into persecution. They're about to go into um, Babylon. God will forsake them. They'll even forget their language. They'll forget their God. They will serve the gods of the Babylonians, and they will be highly compromised when they come back. But they will so know that God is God, that God can revive them. So after they come back, there is a great revival, a great revival where the people are serious to listen to God because they know that God has spoken and they are willing to listen to him. So you, you, you will no more be called forsaken. It's going to appear that you're very forsaken, but you'll never be called forsaken again. And your land will never more be termed desolate, where there's nobody living there, only wild animals living through the, the barren, rocky ruin of your civilization. But you shall be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah. All right? That's easy. Just look up the word. Hepzibah means my delight is in her. You will be my delight is in you. You will be my delight is in you. Now, God saying that outside of time means it's the same now as it will be. Though I'm Though I have made my bed right now, and I have to lie in it in a lot of ways, the choices I've made and the sins I've made has made me live the way I live. And there will be pain in my life because of other people's sins and my own. But God has intended to do me good. And you will be called 
Hephzibah, you will be called my delight, and your land will be called Beulah, meaning married, possessed, cherished, embraced. That's what it is. Your land that you're not going to see another one house on on a street, you will be you will thrive again. And you who will think think that God has completely turned his back on you will be loved again, delighted in again. That that's an amazing thing. So he's what I meant to say before is is God has rescued us from our completely ruined lives. And if I can see that my life is completely ruined, then I don't have any I don't have any ties to it. I'm willing to go to him. I'm willing I'm willing to follow him. And as I follow him, I go through battles, I go through scares, I go through if you trace back through Pilgrim's Progress, you he, they were trapped in a cage that the giant of despair forever not realizing that they had the key to open the gate. And forever they were just in despair. They just didn't know what to do. There, there was a depression in a Christian life. There's a, there's a hollowness because you're blind, because you can't see the king. But you get God gets you all the way. He gets you through that. He gets you through that. You go through the valley of shadow of death, and you can see the opening gates of hell and know that you should go there. You know that you're afraid you are afraid for yourself, you're afraid for your family, you're afraid for the people that you don't even know, God can get you through that. And then there is a time when really there is a rest that comes over you and a joy unspeakable and full of glory to where you're looking directly at your inheritance. You're looking at the reflected light of the Lamb of God shining on the gold that will be so dazzling that you would have to cover your eyes. And you want it Every drop of saliva is like salivating for it. You want it so bad. And when a saint closes his eyes on his deathbed, you can have this world. You can have it. There's nothing I want. There's nothing I care about. Keep all the plastic, kids. Keep it all. I don't want it. That is Beulah. So I asked myself a couple questions. To kind of close this out, I ask myself a question. What does living in Beulah produce in the heart of a believer? If I were to truly know that God loves me and not keep believing that same eddy of lies, what does that do in me? So I wrote down my lists. Whenever I write down a list, you could probably laugh at this. You could come up with 15 different ones, right? This is not... These are just, I was thinking, and the first thing I wrote was love for God. When I see what God has done for me, I love him. And I'm thankful for what he's done in my life. That's thanksgiving. So I picked 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God unto faith through a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein we greatly rejoice, 
Though now, if for seasons need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tried with fire, might be found into the praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom you having not seen, you love. In him, though you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. That inheritance that I'm looking at across the river gives me love for God. I love him. And I, his commandments are not, are not too much. They're not burdensome to me. The second thing I wrote down was I have a different reaction to my afflictions. I'm not as whiny. My afflictions, which are real, my pains, which are real, there are people in this world who love God all their heart suffer real suffering, real suffering, suffering that I've never experienced, pain that is unspeakable pain that only they know because nobody else knows. Jesus knows. 2 Corinthians 8 says that in a time of great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Even though they were greatly poor, the joy they had from knowing what God is, even though they were in deep affliction, made them generous in their lives. Their life was outgoing. It's not give me more, give me more, give me more, I'm poor, give me more, you're rich, you need to give it to me. Absolutely not. Suddenly the rich are the ones who have God, and they can be liberal in the way that they live their lives due to the joy that comes from the fact that God is right in front of their face. They live across from glory. That is a, that is a dynamic thing. My afflictions now become, become something to where, oh, I can't wait until I taste it. I don't have it. I don't have it. I want it. I want it. Number three, I wrote down love of the world. This is first John two. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So I'm not as entranced, I'm not as enticed, I'm not as impressed as I once was. I wanted what everybody else wanted. I I chased what everybody else chased. I wanted it. I wanted what I see on TV as though all these people, it's tremendous. I'm like, where, who are these people? And I'm like, how, why don't I have it? And so so what happens is when you live for yourself and all you can see is yourself, you are entitled. Why don't I have these things? It's what causes revolution. It's what causes robbery. I want what I don't have and I'm going to get it right now. No, you don't love those things. You love the things God loves, and suddenly now all that, take it. I don't care. You can have it. I wrote down number four in a weird way because I didn't know how to write it down. I just wrote down what they leave behind. A person who is in Beulah land leaves things behind. So I wrote down Matthew, Peter, and Paul. What did Matthew leave behind? left behind a table, right? He was the counting guy. He was the, he was the tax collector. And he left his table with the money still on it 
and he stood up and he followed Jesus. Now, does that mean he left his money? Yes. His wealth? Yes. Does that mean he left his connections with the Romans? Yes. Did it mean now the Romans were mad at him? Yes. All of it, he left it behind because he had more with following Jesus than he had before, being the rich guy. Peter, what did Peter leave? He dropped his nets and followed him. It was all he knew. It was all he knew. He, he left everything he knew. He left how he made money. He left what he did. He left his identity. Don't tell me, men, that we're not identified with what we do. We are what we do. To leave what you do because you'd rather follow Jesus is it suddenly it, it's hard at the moment, but when you do it, you're like, why would I even care? I would rather have Jesus than anything. And then I wrote down Paul. Paul had status. Paul had prestige. Paul had all of it. He was a leader. He left it. And he said, I count it as loss. I count it as dung that I might know the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I would rather know the sufferings and be conformable to his death than to have what I once had that I thought was awesome. Okay? Number five I wrote down was meekness. A person who is looking at glory and knowing what he's seeing and sure that it's there does not have to be the smartest guy in the room, the guy with all the answers, the guy with the the punchline. He doesn't need to be the one making other people do his will. He's able to be meek because God is the one that's winning. He's not the one that's winning. You can be Andy and not Barney. There's a comfort in knowing that you're fine, okay? So if, you know, if if the big burly lumberjack wants to have the third-grade arm wrestling championship, he doesn't have to break arms. He can just, like, smile and be nice and be kind because meekness automatically follows strength. Because meekness is not weakness. Meekness is your power under control. Whatever you think your power is... Deferring it to God, you're in control. And that comes from looking across the street from glory. That's what it means. I see God. I see what he is. I see who he is. I see that he's God and I'm not God. Suddenly, I don't have to be the guy that gets my way. I don't have to be the one everybody tippy-toes around and walks on eggs because they don't want to make me mad. Good grief. A Christian is meek for that reason because God is big. That's why. And I have one more, the hope of glory. Romans 5, 2 says, By whom also we have access to this faith wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The grace that I stand in gives me hope of God's glory forever in my life and outside of my life. And I know it's mine. I know it's mine. It's the same as it's mine. Hope means it's the same as done And I'm living in the future right now. Beulah land is living right now the way you will live in the eternal state. That's what Beulah land means. And then 65. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't stop without this. That God would rejoice over you with singing. Of course I have to end there. This is 62.5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so thy son shall marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoices over her bride so shall thy God rejoice over thee. 
God will rejoice. You will be a trophy in his hand. Something that he delights in, loves, really loves, not tolerates, but loves. And this is what causes the covenant. The covenant of of Christ to come to be our Savior was built in the covenant of God rejoicing over you. This This is the verse before the new covenant in Jeremiah. This is, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's Jeremiah 32. This is right before that. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I'll rejoice over them to do them good. And I will plant them in the land surely with my whole heart and with my whole soul. So that I can rejoice in them. That's God's intent. He wants to be our people and he wants to be our our God and us to be his people. And Zephaniah 3 came to mind. I will rejoice over thee with singing. Why? I have no idea. I couldn't say why. Why? I couldn't tell you. You're going to have to ask God for that. Why? But it's true. It's the gospel. And it's the soft pillow of the gospel that makes me say, thank you, God, for what you've done in my heart. 